In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Have you ever received news that was too good to be true? Maybe it's that letter that shows up in the mail promising you that you have won $11 million or something to that effect. You have heard about a particular medical advancement or you have heard about a person being favorable toward you. Things that we hear sometimes that simply seem too good to be true and we say, well, I've heard things like that before and we get used to them we grow skeptical about them uh, and perhaps even more really discerning about them over time we learn as we grow not to simply believe all of the great promises that we hear in fact the book of proverbs tells us that the naive believes everything it's characteristic of someone who is not yet fully matured in their mind to take people at their word when they ought not to be taken at their word And sometimes, as we grow in our discernment, we hear things and we say, there is no possible way that what you're telling me can be true. Now, as it turns out, sometimes the things that we think are unbelievable actually do turn out to come to pass. Uh, But in this occasion, we have something here that was too good to be true 
for Zacharias. News about a son that would come to him in his old age. And yet, unfortunately, when he heard this announcement, he didn't hear it as someone who simply was wise and discerning by virtue of his advanced age and his godliness. But rather, he heard a promise that, while too good to be true in a human sense, was nonetheless true. And one which he should have believed. And yet, he chose not to believe it, not because of his lack of discernment, or rather because of his advanced discernment, but because of his doubt of the word of God. This is a sober warning for us as we consider this text, even as God is making an amazing promise that we would have a forerunner come through Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, even as he's hearing that he would receive a son in his old age, and not just a son, but a very special one at that, he is doubtful. Even a righteous man like this doubts the very promise of God to do a good thing to him. And so it is, among other things, a warning for us as we come to this text that we should highly esteem the word of God. That we should be careful to believe what God has said, even if we don't understand how it can be true. Even if we don't understand all of the details of how it's going to work out. Zechariah is for us a warning. And yet at the same time, it is an announcement and an example of God's blessing. God's grace, God's kindness, as he gives to Zacharias and Elizabeth a son, and as he gives to Israel a messenger who would come and announce the good news of Jesus Christ, and as he, through that, gives to the world the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, who is the one who would follow this special announced son. As we return to this passage this morning, what we're going to find is not only that God makes a promise, but that God keeps his promise to his faithful servants, despite, in this case, a moment of unbelief, to be gracious to them and to grant them a special son. God is going in this passage to keep his promise to his faithful servants, Zacharias and Elizabeth, despite a moment of unbelief, to be gracious and to grant them a special son. As we resume this morning, we covered last time the initial sections of this verses 5 through 7 told us about a righteous but childless couple we can see in verse 6 that these two were uh, they were righteous in the sight of God their character was unassailable they were not sinless they depended upon God's grace for salvation like every other person the Bible is very clear upon this matter that everyone has sinned all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs salvation. And yet these were characteristically righteous and faithful enough that it could be said of them they were righteous in the sight of God. And they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were exemplary servants of God. And yet they had not received what was the normal course of life for people who were married. Namely to have children. They had no child at all. Not just the lack of a son, as some people in previous times in the Bible who would be the heir, such as Abraham, but no child at all. And now it was seemingly too late. Well, Zacharias uh, goes in to serve. We found out about not only the righteous but childless couple, but also the priest's service for the people. Zacharias was on his rotation, uh, one out of something like 18,000 priests that would have been there, and this was his day. Now, there may have been a few others attending him alongside of him doing this various, the various components of offering the incense offering. But this was basically because of the number of priests and because of the way the rotation works, as it says here, the custom of the priestly office. This was basically his one shot at this. Out of 
decades of ministry as a priest, this was his time, his special occasion, likely the only time he would ever get to go in and to participate in the incense offering. And he was chosen by lot in this case, randomly it seems in the sight of man, but intentionally in the sight of God and his sovereign plan. So he goes in to serve and everybody is waiting outside for him according to verse 10. Then we found out about the angel's announcement to Zacharias. And this angel appears, the angel who we find out in verse 19 is the angel Gabriel, the same one who appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, and brought divine revelation. And this angel appears to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. He scares Gabriel. He appears to him, excuse me, he appears to him, and then he, he brings a message. He brings a promise to him. And the promise itself, as you may note here, has really three layers or three tiers to it. In verses 13 and 14, he simply tells him that he will have a son. He says, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. He could have just stopped right there and it would have been blessing enough. He could have said, you didn't have a son, but now Elizabeth is going to give you a son. And this is all you need, and you're going to have great joy. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, and he talks in verse 15 about the greatness of this son. The son's greatness is on display. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So he is going to be a very great person, not just in the sight of men, but rather in the sight of God. He will be highly esteemed by the Lord. And then beyond that, he's not just a great person with great character. Zacharias doesn't just get a son and he doesn't just get someone who is a great person in the sight of the Lord. But he has a very special, unique, significant role in redemptive history. Namely, he is the one who is announcing the coming of the Lord. To do so, he is filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Verse 16 says, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Why? So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, as we mentioned last time, this is significant for us because... On the surface, we wouldn't think that Israel really needed to be turned back to the Lord. This was a group of people who were worshiping the true God in the temple according to the sacrificial system. They were kind of doing everything right. They were, so to speak, coming to church, reading the Bible, and worshiping a single God of the Bible. And yet what he says is that John needs to get the people ready because their hearts are not turned to the Lord. They're turned away from the Lord. Israel was plagued in this day by hypocrisy and formalism, formal religion that didn't have the sincerity of heart that actually was supposed to go with biblical religion. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he told her that people need to worship in two ways, in spirit and in truth. And these are not two different kinds of ways that are to be set against each other, but ways which are actually both necessary for a true worshiper to be validated before God. The Samaritans in her day had spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but they actually intended to do what they were doing. They actually had sincerity behind their worship. And that doesn't so much talk about the feelings or the emotions or affections that would come out of that, though those can be involved. But it talks about the fact that they actually believed what they were doing. 
they actually cared about what they were doing. There was a reality to them where they didn't just worship and then go do something else when they weren't formally worshiping. They had that, but they were missing out on what the Jews had, namely the truth. The Jews had the truth of God, but they didn't actually have their hearts turned to God. And this is why Jesus came and he said, you worship me with your mouths, but what? Your hearts are far from me. They taught as doctrines are taught as commandments, the doctrines of men. They added to God's word. They taught man's ideas as divine truth. They had their own ways of doing what God said, but their hearts were far away from God, even as they were doing all these things that looked very religious. And so it is in our day, where you have many people who are very fervent for God, very sincere in their worship, very uh, excited in their worship, or very pure in terms of what they think they ought to do, but their worship is not controlled at all by the word of God and they don't believe what the scripture says on the other side of things you have people who understand that the Bible is the way and they would affirm that Jesus is the way of salvation and they would say yes the gospel is exclusive and they would say Christianity is the best way to do things and yet they don't actually in their heart believe that message and you can tell because of the way that they will act when no one else is around or the way that they respond when they're not in a formal worship setting or maybe They just act that way even when other people are around and they don't recognize that simply saying words is not all there is to religion. Israel suffered from the latter plague during this time. They were those who had lots of formal religion. They were gathered together at this hour for prayer, for worship. They were waiting for Zacharias and yet they needed someone to come and to turn their hearts to the Lord. Too many people today are in the same position, going to church, knowing the Bible as the way that things ought to be, gathering for worship, singing Christian music, listening to that. And yet, where are their hearts? Are their hearts there for God? Do they serve him with sincerity? Do they care about what the scriptures say? Do they fear the Lord? This is the kind of thing that John was sent to do. And what a wonderful thing it is that God would graciously send someone like this who is going to come and, as we'll read, pierce the hearts of the people in this nation and say, you're doing what's wrong. You need to repent. God graciously was doing this, but he wasn't just doing this for their benefit. He was doing it because the Lord who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ who would follow after John, deserves to have such a people waiting for him. He is going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When God sent Jesus into the world and when he sends him again, the idea is not that Jesus would come and have a bunch of half-hearted, impure servants. The idea is that they would be prepared for him, that they would have their hearts turned to him. And so when Jesus died, he did so, as Ephesians 5 tells us, to sanctify and to purify the bride of Christ. As Titus 2 tells us, he did this so that he would purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Jesus intends to make his bride ready for the wedding day. So we who would belong to the Lord, ought not simply to say, Jesus has forgiven me, and that's really all that matters. But we should say, Jesus has forgiven me, and I have repented, and I long to be like him and to be ready for when he comes. Well, this is the promise that he gave. The angel's announcement to Zacharias consisted of this promise of a son that would come. The angel delivered this message to Zacharias, but Zacharias' response is not ideal. It is not ideal. Let's look at the angel's response from Zacharias. And it is unfortunate that these are the only words that he says in this entire event. And they will be 
the last words that he says for several months. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this? Or how will I know this for certain? He asked a question, just a simple question. How do I know this? You said this is going to happen. How will I know? He gives a pretty good reason for questioning. He says, I'm an old man. In fact, this word is used elsewhere to describe in Philemon 9, Paul, the aged. It's not just that he's kind of older than some others. He, he is elderly. My wife is advanced in years, so it's not just me either. Again, on the surface, it kind of makes sense. People at this age just don't have children. It's just not the way it works. So um, he basically says that's a pretty big promise you're making there, Mr. Angel. But we need to understand something. When Zacharias heard this, uh, he didn't understand, or he didn't question, rather, whether or not this word came from God. Okay, understand this as a baseline. He knows it's an angel. He understands that the message is coming from God. The problem is not that he doubts whether this is the scriptures, and he has to say, you know, is this actually the word of God or not? Because if it is, I'm going to believe it, but if not, I'm going to reject it. He doesn't say that. The problem is, he functionally puts something else above what he already acknowledges to be God's word. And he implicitly acknowledges it doesn't matter whether or not God has said this. He is not going to believe it without further proof, without something else validating the word of God. He says, how can I know this for certain? He's not asking something like this. Uh, how is this going to happen? You know, I've never heard of someone having a child at this age. My wife and I are advanced in years. You know, I, I believe what you're saying, but I'm just a little curious. How, how is this going to work out? You know, I just don't understand the mechanics of all of this. This is, are you going to make us younger? You know, are you going to do this miraculously? Like just, just somehow defy the laws of nature? How is this going to work? And just, I'm just curious, but it's okay if you don't tell me. That would be different. That's not what he's doing. He is not willing to take the angel at his word. He doesn't ask a question about mechanics. Instead, he raises doubt about the certainty of the promise. That is the issue. And in effect, he says, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I need more proof. I need something else. And his problem was believing that something else would be or could be more certain than the word of God itself. Here he is looking at what is visible and refusing to believe God's promise beyond what he could see and understand in the way that the world works. And so he wanted more certainty than what the angel could give him. This was then an act of unbelief. There's a, uh, a contrast here to what we find in such places as Genesis 15. Turn there with me if you would. Genesis 15, the account of, uh, uh, the account of Abraham. Before he actually came to be known as Abraham or Abraham, uh, Abraham, by God, naming him this in Genesis 17, he was known as Abram. Abram had already been told to leave his country where he had been dwelling and to go to the land of Canaan. And God made some promises to him, one of which was that he would become a great nation. Abram dwells in the land for a while. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back and some things go on and he gets to chapter 15 and this promise gets reiterated. After these things, Genesis 15, 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, don't fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And he says back, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? 
I mean, you're talking about a reward, but how's this going to happen? What's it going to be? I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So he's looking around, and he says, I, I don't get this. So you're going to give me a reward, but where is my descendant? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. As innumerable as the stars of the sky is what he's describing. And then he, it says, believed in the Lord. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This was his response. A response of faith in God's word despite how impossible it seemed. We have a commentary on this in Romans chapter 4. And I'd like you to turn there as well. Romans chapter 4 as the Apostle Paul is defending the doctrine of justification by faith or God treating us as righteous by faith alone rather than by doing good works to become righteous, he looks back to the example of Abraham and he's raising the question in Romans 4, well, let's, if we want to find out, is it by works or by faith that we are saved? Why don't we look at how things worked in the Old Testament and let's look at Abraham, the forefather of our faith. And he says, how was he saved? And it says in verse, starting in verse 16, follow along, Romans 4, 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This, by the way, is how we, who are not Jews by nature, can become sons of Abraham and can receive the promise that God made to him. Verse 17, as it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what, uh, that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, listen to this. He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Here we have a statement, first of all, about the way that someone becomes righteous before God. How does someone get a righteous standing with God instead of being under his judgment? It is by faith, just like Abraham. When people in the Old Testament were saved, it was not by works, it was by faith. And very often people get this confused and think that there was some kind of a change when Jesus came where they think people used to be saved by works, but now they're saved by grace. This is not the case. The law was given to Israel to keep for their own, uh, their own relationship to God in an ongoing way as uh, those who were under this particular way of relating to God, but they were not saved by doing those works. Instead, it was and has always been by faith. And Abraham, who came even before the law, demonstrates this to us. But not only does this show us the way that faith brings righteousness, but it also gives us a sterling example of what it means to actually put your faith in the word of God. It's looking at God's word and saying, I know my circumstances, 
I know what I see, I know what I have experienced, and it doesn't necessarily make sense to me that the outcome God promises can happen from where I'm at. And yet, because he has said so, I am going to believe it. He thought about his body. God, sent, God gave him this word and said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham doesn't all of a sudden just forget how old he is. And he doesn't forget how old Sarah is. And he doesn't forget that she's never had a child. He doesn't forget any of those things. He is fully aware of what those things are. He understands the difficulty. And yet, despite that, he says, I am going to believe God. And this kind of faith, he says, glorifies God. Verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. We see no statement in Genesis 15 about him saying something like glory to God or God, you are glorious. So what Paul is saying here is that Abraham, by believing God over his own senses, implicitly is glorifying God. And we do the same thing when we believe God's word, despite the difficulty that we may find in believing a particular promise or understanding how something will work. When we say God's word is more solid than anything that we can figure out or, or, or put together on our own, we are glorifying him, walking by faith with a high view of God's word and trusting him in everything he says brings glory to God. And so Abraham practiced this and he was rewarded. Not only was he credited with righteousness by faith, but in addition to this, he ultimately became the father of many nations and he was the one who did receive that son, and then it came to pass. So consider then, as we move back into Luke chapter 1, consider the things that you have a hard time believing despite the fact that God has said them, and ask yourself why. And look at those circumstances or those things just square in the eye and say, is my reason superior to the certainty of God's promises? Is my deduction more sure than the promise and the, the statements of truth that God has revealed. This is really the, the question. Who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe ourselves or are we going to believe God? At the end of the day, that is the question with regard to the word of God. And it must always be that we say, no matter what we might otherwise think, God is true and what he has said will stand. One of the great things about Believing the word of God over believing everybody else is not only that God's word has been tested and shown to come to pass so many times, but also that when we are trusting God and his word, we are trusting someone who has the power to bring it to pass. So that questions that we might have about how something would work that would cause us to say, this isn't possible, therefore I won't believe it. Those kinds of questions get rooted out and they get moved out of the way in view of the ultimate omnipotence of God. God doesn't make promises that he is unable to keep. God can do anything that he says. So here, Zacharias is told this promise, and despite the fact that God can do anything, that he has given a child to Abraham in his old age previously, despite the fact that God made all things and can do anything, Zacharias doubts, and he questions, and he's going to have a consequence brought upon him. One more thought before we go there. Uh, here is a man who has been very faithful to God. He is righteous. He is blameless. Everyone understands who this is. Everyone knows this is a righteous man. And yet here he has a moment of weakness, a moment of doubt. And it brings some pretty unpleasant consequences, as we'll see. But we should note carefully how we should always be on the alert and how we can never be too careful 
with the issue of doubt and unbelief. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 warns us, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We should never presume that we will be okay just because we have lived a righteous life in some degree up to this point. We should always be on the alert toward the temptation to unbelief. And on that note, we should look out as well for one another. You know the passage in Hebrews 3, don't you? Take care, verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You notice there, he warns against an evil, unbelieving heart. Not just one that does moral evil, though that is there as well, but also one that is evil by virtue of not believing what God has said. We need encouragement to continue to press on in faith. This is something we should help each other with. We should encourage one another, pray for one another, remind one another so that we don't find ourselves in such a position. Now, while this does indicate unbelief on the part of Zacharias, there's also something else going on here because Zacharias' unbelief does not stop God from doing what he promised that he would do. The angel moves on to rebuke Zacharias. To rebuke him. His rebuke of Zacharias is found in verses 19 and 20. And the reason why this is significant is because Zacharias' doubt doesn't get in the way of this promised fulfillment at all. Uh, And the angel uh, tells him this. He begins by telling him his credentials. What are the credentials of this angel? He says, uh, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. And at that moment, Zacharias should already be saying, oh no, I've made a big mistake. This is uh, the first message of the New Testament, and it comes from someone who was giving messages late in the Old Testament. Again, in the book of Daniel, chapter 8 and 9, he brought these visions to Daniel, possibly chapter 10 as well. But he is Gabriel, and he stands, he says, in the presence of God. He is a powerfully important angel. He is someone who is, whose default place, whose home, if you will, is in the heavenly presence of none other than Almighty God. And this in and of itself should be significant enough for him to be believable. In fact, even if he just overheard the message, you know, I was hanging out in my home in heaven and God said this to somebody else and I just thought I would come and report this to you. That would be enough to where he should absolutely believe this messenger. And yet there's even more. He had been sent specifically to give this truthful message from God. God had sent him for the purpose that he would believe this. Verse 20, behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak. Excuse me, uh, second half of verse 19. Uh, I have been sent to speak to you. And to bring you this good news. He says here, I am here for one reason. It's because I didn't get lost on the way to giving somebody else a message. I was sent to speak to you. And to give you this good news. This is almost insulting that you wouldn't believe it. It is insulting to God. It is uh, not only doubt, but it casts a lack of glory upon God's reputation. At least in the heart of Zacharias. And if he spread that to others, it would do the same toward them as well. He says, I've been sent to bring you these good news. It is literally uh, these things. It's, it's multiple. It's plural. There's a whole group of things. He isn't just coming to bring him the news about having a son, but also the significance of this son and the role of this son. Zacharias was to be the conduit through which this announcement of the blessing that God was intending to give to Israel and other people would come. He's been sent to tell him all that God was doing And yet here, he doesn't believe it. So then, 
we find the consequences for this unbelief in verse 20. The consequences are this. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Verse uh, 62 tells us as well that he would be unable, it seems, to, to hear. Because in verse 62, they made signs to his father. The people were making signs to Zacharias once John was born as to what he wanted him called. So it wasn't just that he would have to make signs to them, but they were also making signs to him. So evidently, his speech was gone as well as his hearing. And uh, he would be unable to speak until the day when these things take place, which shows us, in addition to the consequences, it also shows us the certainty of this promise. Now, God has spoken it already, but the angel wants to re-emphasize this. He says, you'll be silent until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. He listens to Zacharias' doubt, and you combine these phrases which will be fulfilled, and the day when these things take place, and you say the angel is just completely unfazed by Zacharias' doubt. He had got the message from God. He brought it, and he says, oh, that's great. You don't believe me? Well, you have the consequences, but that doesn't get in the way at all of what I am going to do and what God is going to do. This will be fulfilled. It will happen. And so it is with all of God's promises. It doesn't really matter whether people believe that they're going to happen or not. They're going to happen when God says how he says according to his own power. Well, we get to verses 21 to 23, and we find this uh, discipline from God towards Zacharias is on display, and we encounter a priest's silence before the people. A priest's silence before the people. The people were waiting for Zacharias, and were wondering at his delay in the temple. Evidently, this was usually done quite a bit more quickly, and his delay got noticed, and they're saying, what is going on? Why is Zacharias staying in there so long? But when he came out, He was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. Evidently, the inability to speak and to hear uh, in the way that Zacharias responded and paired with the delay and where this had taken place was indicative enough of the fact that this miraculous supernatural vision had come to him in some way. Obviously, he is unable to tell them directly, I saw a vision, but they were able to put the pieces together well enough from what they saw. And so he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. Now, the problem is he can't tell them the message that he has heard. He can't tell them that 400 years of Old Testament silence is now being, or post-Old Testament silence, is now going to be fulfilled in the person of his own son. And that he's going to be a forerunner before the Lord. And he can't tell him that his son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He can't tell him he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He, He can't communicate all of those things. And so the vision is kept from the people even when he comes out. And what we find here is an example of God doing multiple things at one time. Now that sounds simplistic when I just say it in that way, but I hope you understand the significance of that. God is at one time, or at the one time, doing something to discipline Zacharias. But he's not only bringing discipline upon Zacharias, he is also keeping this revelation secret from the people. And he is keeping, he is revealing it in such a way as that it will be recordable by Luke. He is revealing it in such a way as that Zacharias will understand what to do so that Elizabeth will know when she becomes pregnant 
how it happened and where it came from, and that it wasn't just a coincidence. And so that, as we'll see in the next section, when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, she can receive confirmation of what had been told to her by the angel, and she can have this word solidified. So there are all kinds of puzzle pieces that God is fitting together. We might just look on the surface and say, hey, he did a bad thing, and now he's being disciplined for this. But God is orchestrating all of these events. And so it is with us that so often we oversimplify what we think God is doing in our lives. And we see something happening that is related to something that the scripture says, or maybe even not. And we just see our circumstances and we say, ah, I think what God is doing is this. I think what God is doing in my life is that. And we say, oh, you know, this is God's will, or this is what God is doing. And we are so blind to all of the things that he's doing and why he does the things that he does. And yet we, because we're trying to figure things out and we want to know how God is at work in our lives, we are very quick to... uh, to jump and say, this is what God is doing. And yet, there is so much more going on that we may not even know about. And this is just what's revealed here in this passage. This doesn't even say all the other things that God could have been doing as well by means of this. The point is, God is always at work, and God can do many, many things at once. And when we interpret the work of God, we ought to be very careful about limiting it to only that which we can see. And to claim this is why God is doing this. And to take that somehow as validation for the way that we think about that situation. Zacharias finished his priestly service. The days of his priestly service were ended. He went back home. This would have been uh, just a matter typically under the custom of a few days. He would have come up for a week at a time, as I mentioned last week. A couple of times a year in addition to the major festivals. So he wouldn't have been there that long. And when he goes back home, we find the conclusion to this section, a miraculous and compassionate conception. A miraculous and compassionate conception. The first thing that happens here is this. God's promise is fulfilled. He says it so matter-of-factly, verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. If this was any other circumstance, you wouldn't bat an eye. This is the kind of thing that happens all the time. Pregnancies, babies, and yet here, the significance of this is just so great. God fulfilled his promise. They were both advanced in years. Zacharias was even skeptical. And yet here, God kept his promise. This is what he does. This is what he does. There will come a day, by the way, when all of the promises God has made to us about the future and what he's going to do and sending Jesus back and setting up his kingdom and all of that seeming like it is so far away or so hard to picture or to imagine how that could come to pass. All of that in one moment will just be as simple as this. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. Or you might even say, after these days, God sent Jesus back to the world and set up his eternal kingdom. And it could be written as simply as that, but it's not just that simple is it there's so much more that God is doing and so much more meaning to that so here he says she became pregnant she kept herself in seclusion for five months we don't know why we don't know why but in addition to Zacharias being unable to tell people about this Elizabeth was unwilling to tell people and nobody would know about it for several months we don't know her reasons why we could speculate about this but ultimately we don't know We do know that God used it to keep the event secret until the angel Gabriel told Mary about it a few months later. But she here recognizes what we can see as well from the story, which is God's mercy. God's promise is fulfilled, and when that happens, God's mercy is recognized by Elizabeth. 
She sees this, first of all, as an act of God. It's an act of God. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me. She knows that this is something that God has graciously done. She gives him credit for this. She doesn't just say, I'm so excited. Her circumstances have not just changed. But she clearly sees God in this and she acknowledges that. And so we ought also, even when we have things that are not miraculous, so to speak, anything that God does for us, we ought to be grateful for as well. She also sees it as an act of kindness. In the days when he looked with favor upon me or looked upon me, his eyes found her and he was gracious toward her. He didn't miss her sorrows. He didn't miss her sadness. Instead, he looked upon her. And he, she sees this finally as an act of grace. She says, uh, this is going to take away my disgrace among men. The, um, the related words to this idea of disgrace have to do with insult, with reproach, um, with even reprimand. But really the idea that people would look at you and mock and say, there's something wrong with you. We all know what this is like to be on the side of that, on the receiving end of an insult. It, the feeling is just terrible. And she felt disgraced by virtue of having no child. And people would have viewed her shamefully because of that. They wouldn't have necessarily said, well, you've done something wrong, though some of them, or maybe even many of them, would have or may have suspected that. That was the culture in the day, to think that way. Uh, but nonetheless, there was something about this that was... Uh, viewed in a way that she didn't like how people would have pictured her. Rachel, back in the Old Testament, had been mocked by the women around her. Uh, this is Jacob's wife. And in Genesis 30, verse 22 and 23, it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Elizabeth may not have been mocked by other people, but she would have felt the weight of this. She was not ignorant of the fact that all of these other people had children, and she was an old woman, and she had not gotten to, even though she very much wanted to. And so there is a kind of concern here that Elizabeth has that is not a betrayal of the fear of God, meaning she is aware of what other people think. It affects her, and yet this doesn't mean that she is forsaking being concerned about what God thinks. But Elizabeth's stated character shows that she's not abandoning a fear of God. She's righteous and blameless. And yet she does feel the weight of what people around her think about something that is true about her that is kind of a negative. And it's different. And she isn't happy about it. And uh, it's, it's not a secret. Everybody knows. Here's the woman. No child. Now, there are other ways where this takes place even in our own day. People who are impoverished through no fault of their own. People who have had some kind of physical disfigurement. Something that's a difficult circumstance where you are thought of in a, in a certain way that you just, you don't like it. It's uncomfortable. There's a kind of shame and disgrace that is related to hard circumstances that you're in. And uh, we find here that God is not unaware of those things. And God is not apathetic to those things. God did this not just for the sake of Zacharias, not just to give a messenger to the people, but also out of compassion upon this woman who was one of his servants and who was in some sense under disgrace and was feeling the weight of that. Uh, sometimes we have things like this that don't go away. Sometimes you have hardships that 
God does not remove in this life, and that's okay, but we can know that he knows. And where he does graciously remove those burdens from us, we should be immensely thankful and recognize the blessing that it is. All while we know that whatever way that he does chooses to act in these circumstances, he cares for us. So if you're struggling with something where you're saying, I, th- I think people think this way about me. We need to make sure that we have a godly fear of God where those things in one sense don't matter to us. They don't drive our actions. They don't make us uh, compromise God's word. But at the same time, God is aware and God cares about the things that bring us hardship. And here he shows this by way of example for Elizabeth. He is a gracious God, isn't he? To do so many wonderful things for his servants. Despite this moment of unbelief, despite being under no obligation to do this for them, here he is bringing grace not only to this couple, but then also for the people. And this is the message that we're going to see as we go forth, that God is sending this messenger not just to bless this child, to bless this set of parents, but to bring blessings to all people, including we who now have believed in the gospel to this very day. We're going to pray, and then we are going to sing a song before our membership affirmation. God, thank you for this, uh, this text that shows us your care and concern, your mercy and your grace. You do care about sin. You do discipline. And yet, you're so kind and gracious. You keep your word. We thank you for these things. And we ask that you would be glorified as we respond to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.